Welcome to the True Falls Film Festival. Welcome to the True False Podcast, presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. In this episode, we'll be listening in on a conversation from last year's Field Sessions program. Filmmakers Ursula Leong and Kalik Ala sat down for the Oscillation Field Session to talk about their documentaries Down a Dark Stairwell and I Walk on Water. The former, by Leong, documents the effects of a police shooting of an unarmed black man, where the latter, from Allah, who is black, pushes the boundaries of the filmmaker's relationship with those they document. Appropriately, their conversation started with a discussion of how they found their own ways into the stories they wanted to tell. And I guess I would like to know, like, you know, the first thing I did ask you earlier was what was your film about? And you began to tell me um, about an event that took place in Brooklyn. Right, right. It's about um, a, a police shooting in Brooklyn, New York, uh, where a Chinese-American police officer shot an unarmed African-American man in the sterile of a housing project and sort of the fallout of that happening. And, um, what year was that? That was actually, the incident happened in 2014, mm. and uh, the, the court case surrounding it and a lot of the activism happened sort of um, a couple years later. So it was a a long and tough story to follow, but um, one that I really was interested in telling. And it's it's interesting that you start off by saying like we had like a cool vibe right away. We, you know, we're meeting like neither one of us had very much sleep, so you have to apo- <laughs> I have to apologize for yeah. that off the bat. But that's like I think that's one of the things um, that makes me understand like how you make the films that you make and how you're able to access the kind of characters that you ac- access because it's true. Like as soon as I met him, like I had like a good vibe about him and. I feel like, you know, a lot of your work is like really walking up to people on the street and I'm curious about like how how you approach people and and what it is about how you're approaching people that makes everybody feel like really at ease right off the top. Like good, you don't you know you don't get to interview people on the street unless you have good vibes and you can and people feel that right away. I mean, you know, I had plenty of episodes and situations with people that Definitely, you know, said, no, you can't film me. I, um, you know, I don't know what you're doing. And, you know, I don't trust you. I don't know you. Um, but, you know, you persevere through that. And then you, you kind of develop, like, uh, the tact or, like, you develop a way to disarm people just through your energy and right. through kind of, like, being so open that they, they could feel your vibe and they could say, all right, I do want to do this or I don't want to do this. But it's not like a free-for-all where I go out to the streets still and everybody allows me to film them. Um, what, what percentage of people let you film them? Well, the like it, uh, yeah, 50% the, or more? I would say more because I'm always in the same area. I'm always filming, well, this is the third film that True False is premiering of mine within the last five years. And I, I have some like previous work, but these are my like proper films since I've been like a I guess considering myself a filmmaker. Before that, I was kind of like dabbling. And the first film was on the same corner that I revisited for this movie. So I already had the relationships. But I, I, I suppose if I was somewhere else, like my second film, which was in Jamaica, a lot of people were hesitant to mm-hmm. either give me a audio recording or to even step in front of the camera. 
But, you know, I check myself. I try to check myself first and say, why am I stopping this person? What do I believe, you know, I would achieve through this interaction in, in this process? And, you know, sometimes I'll even try my family and they'll say, nah, I don't want to participate in that. I know you got a bunch of crazy stuff in this film. I don't want to <laughs> mess with you. So, you know, like I'm kind of like a style. I like to be like a stylist, a filmmaker stylist, like, you know. But with your with your project, are you shooting your own projects as well, or are you kind of just like masterminding it? I like that word masterminding. I wish I could say I was a mastermind. No, I um I usually start out shooting because I don't have any money. I'm not mm. as good a shooter as you are, so it's out of necessity that I'm shooting. And now as I'm getting older, my eyes are getting worse, and I'm like freaking out about the fact that I might not be able to shoot the next one because it's hard to look at the screen really? up close and look mm. far away at the same mm. time. But I guess the challenge is really just to raise money up at the top so I can hire other people. But I actually do like to shoot, and I wish I were a little more technically proficient and my eyes were better because I feel like I like to be able to control what the camera is seeing. And I think one thing that I am good at is noticing all the things, like the details that, that need to be captured by the camera. And it's very hard to like try to puppet somebody else as a director, like to get them to shoot what you want them yeah. to shoot. I mean, I noticed in your film, like there are definitely some scenes where you're in it. So somebody else is shooting. Yeah. And then there was also like some of the shots with the, like the police officers, for instance, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a different camera and it must be like, how do you work with other people when you're in the field? Well, um, the shots of the police were me, but the shots of the people filming me were, were my friends. I have a friend that's a, uh, a New York city taxi driver. Um, he actually escaped, um, almost being killed in uh, Toronto and he met me on Facebook and uh, this is a couple of years ago and he moved to New York and um, I got him a job at Home Depot and then uh, he quit and I was like yo man you need a job man you can't hustle that's what you were escaping in, mm -hmm. in Canada so he became a taxi driver and when I'm doing films he's my driver <laughs> you know that's um, smart. Coming up, Ursula Leung talks about how her past as a journalist plays a role in her documentary work. That's next, after this. Welcome back to the True False Podcast presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. On this episode, filmmakers Ursula Leung and Kali Gala discuss their processes when creating their documentary pieces as part of the 2020 Field Sessions program. While their approach to filmmaking differs significantly, they're both drawn to the sometimes improvisational nature of documentary filmmaking. T tell me about that though, all of your work is documentary. Uh, I mean, I, yeah, it is really documentary. Mm -hmm. I come from mm -hmm. like a journalism space and I've moved into documentary and I did produce like a narrative like short and then I did some commercial work where we did mm. have a DP that had a little focus chick. But mm. um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'm interested in narrative work because it requires like a lot of planning. Right. That's what I don't like. Right, I think you're right. like me where you're right. like, I like, I use a sports analogy for this because I used to work in sports. It's like, I feel like it's a little bit more like a running back style where you just want to like move and find the spaces and the openings and react to like what's happening. And that's what I love about documentary, the ability to like sort of play and be flexible and react and problem solve on the go. And, you know, if you're a narrative filmmaker, you have to raise the money all up at the top. You have to like book everything out and book, you know, plan every shot to the, you know, it to exactly before right. you start. All the pre-production. That stresses me. Uh, I, I have yet to make a, um, a fiction narrative film. 
But I want You to. look like you're leaning in that way, though. Well, people are getting tired of me doing the same thing over and over, and they're telling me. But they don't say it like that. They say it more like, oh, yeah, I really think you could do something like in the fiction realm. But in this new project that I'm here with now, I feel like I um, expanded my style completely. I grew. I grew from what it is. And, and no matter what people tell you, you just got to do what you want to see. You got to make right. the films you want to see. Because your vision, is, you got a unique vision. So you got to, you know, you know, you're your number one um, audience member first. You know what I'm saying? Like, you got to make something that you're going to be happy with. But I do want to do a fiction. But for the reasons that you just spoke about, like raising funds and the pre-production that goes into it and the writing, to me, those are hurdles. Those are like obstacles. I'd rather just go out there with a the camera because the film is already out there. You know, everybody in this room has a story. If we interviewed everybody in this room and then follow them around for a couple of days, we come up with something that we don't know we come up with. And I think the unknown is what attracts me to, right. like, uh, fiction. Uh, I mean, nonfiction. What, what do you find the most difficult thing about filmmaking? Like, what are the parts that you hate to do? Raising money. Yeah. And, you know, like, the, the politics of it. Um, it's cool, but you got to have a good producer, which, which now I have a new producer. Um, this, this new project, I started it in July. And, um, you know... The one that you're screening tonight? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's a quick turnaround. Yeah. <laughs> and I blitzed on it, whereas I didn't go and knock on any production company's doors and say, can you get behind this financially? And then I ended up putting myself in debt. And then a couple of people that had supported me in the past, you know, basically were like, yeah, we like what you're doing, but we don't know what the hell this is. And I couldn't show them a rough cut because I just had, like, rough footage. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a, a film. And, uh, you know, they gave me a little something, which I'm very grateful for because it helped. But I didn't go about it in the way where, you know, to get funding, to get that type of infrastructure or that foundation to build off of the kind of... But that's the thing. Like, with documentary, if you're inspired and something happens in your life, for me, my ex-girlfriend Camilla came to visit me from Brussels, and that's what set it off. Like, when she came, um, uh, we went to the barbershop, and, you know, she filmed me getting the haircut. And then when I was like, well, okay, let's just keep filming, and then I took her to Harlem, where I, where I do a lot of my work at, and... um one thing led to another, and I, I started amassing material. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Okay, I'm making a film again. I guess I'm making. I guess I'm starting something." You know, you just go with the momentum. Yeah. What What was the genesis for you for this project? Like, what was the catalyst? Um, I just really took my camera out one day to this protest, and that I expected to be small. And when I got there, it was enormous, and it was really shocking the scale of it. In and Brooklyn. Yeah, and mm, and mm. so I felt like I felt like I was watching like history in real time, like something that for particularly for the Asian American community would be super important 20 years from now. And so I felt like it was an opportunity to tell a story like in present tense about something that would be historically very significant for my community. So how do you think about film as like a time capsule because that's that's what I gather from what you just said like Yeah. I think that you know, I'm I feel like that's partially why I do documentary. I feel like I'm hoarding history and hoarding moments and um and i'm trying to i'm trying to like not let them slip away and what happens when you don't like you know I, I like the documentary form because it allows you to sort of like curate the moments for history and that feels like an important job yeah. um you know you're 
we now have like this like we were not you know I grew up a long time ago when, where, where we only had like three channels and you turn the channel with like you know a knob and <laughs> now you've got like 400 channels and so many things to read and a million blogs and a million emails every day and I think we're getting like an overload of information where like all that history is there but it's getting it's slipping away because it gets lost in like the lack of curation so people are not sharing the same media we're not sharing the same ideas mm -hmm. and stories and so um, if we're not all exposed to the same things, there are things that are going to be lost. And so I think our job, like, as, like, the material gets, like, bigger and bigger and more accessible is really, like, important as curators of mm -hmm. history. So how do you but find your stories? Do you start shooting first or do you kind of, like, get triggered That's by something? That's a good question. I mean, I don't know. Like, you really have to, like, have momentum in documentary. So it has to, like, be something interesting enough that you feel like you might want to kill yourself to make the film. <laughs> yeah. Or, um, or it's like an urgent enough story where like somebody's going to die or mm -hmm. um, the story's going to disappear, your opportunity mm -hmm. to, it, to shoot it will disappear. So that to me is like usually how it, it goes. And I'm also like interested in things that are really complicated, which yeah. I think is a really stupid idea because uh. then you end up having like a super complicated film and a super complicated edit. And that's just, I think, what I do. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, you know, it's like, like a puzzle. Like, yeah, I like that part of it, but I also think like I should do what other people do is just pick like one cooperative subject and follow them around for a very specific yeah. period of time. Like that's how that's a good approach. That's that's, that's, that's an easy approach, and mm -hmm. it's like one that's affordable. And I never pick that kind of film. So yeah, and then I also think that I should start making films that have either animals or babies in them because yeah. those are like yeah. quick sellers on the market. Oh man, yeah, put 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 some animals in your film. You're yep. good. Uh, dogs. You had some animals um, in the Haiti in the um, Jamaica film. Some crocodiles. Weren't there some dogs on the street? And yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. Some mongrels. Some I actually have an animal in the film that's mongrels. I have like a really that's cute squirrel in my mongrels. film. The squirrel in my film is <laughs> playing here. He goes like this in the film. He like takes a little nut and goes like this. You got a squirrel in the film. Squirrel, yeah. I think it, I, to me that's the money shot in the film. The squirrel. That's so funny, man. Well, so talk about your nocturnal filmmaking. Like, what is it about the night? Well, or you, you just said it. Like, well, when I was asking you about being triggered in something, I really liked it summer yeah like the shoot in the summer is like like energy like like i just love the summer energy in new york because it's always different it is there's a lot different. going on mm -hmm. and to capture that to like you know take a like a a sample in a sense of a summer is always um interesting to me that's when my film began in july basically after black mother was completed i had a bunch of film left over in the refrigerator you know, 16 millimeter film for my Bolex that was just in the fridge with no idea behind what it would, what it would be used for. And um, when Camilla came to visit me, uh, we began shooting it. First we went, to, we went to the barber, then we went to the park, and then I was telling her about a man named Frenchie who I've known for seven years, but who went missing. He, went, he got hit by a train in uh, the 456 station mm -hmm. um, in, in East Harlem. And he survived the train hit. And because of that, he kind of became like a superhero to me in a sense. You know, he's a diagnosed schizophrenic bipolar uh, Haitian man uh, who speaks Creole. Um, and they call him Frenchie because of that. And I met him in 2011, actually. But I started to get to know him in 2012. And throughout the process of Black Mother being created, he was missing. He was gone for like four years. And I found him after my first like color session with Black Mother. I found him downtown, which I'd never see him downtown in New York. I always see him in Harlem. And um, you know, he got into my car, went for a little drive. I took him uh, to another subway that he could get back uptown. 
And um, I left them alone after, once I got into the festival circuit with Black Mother. But when Camilla came to visit me, I said, yo, let's go look for my guy, Frenchie. And, um, you know, Camilla is, you know, a European white woman who, number one, to take her to the barbershop that I go to, which is kind of like a hood barbershop, they never seen a woman in there, let alone a white woman in that barbershop, mm -hmm. you know. And it was a beautiful experience, you know, to like kind of bridge the gap right there. So from there, I got the idea, let me take it to, to Harlem and go look for Frenchie. And we found Frenchie. I had to go into the bank at some point, and I left them together in the car with the microphone running. So she began to speak with Frenchie in a beautiful interview just between the two of them who were complete strangers unfolded. And, um, you know, she went back to Brussels and uh, I continued working. And, um, you know, I forget why I'm saying all this. You had a I don't remember either. Oh, I don't know. Either. But, you know, just, this is how it began with me with this project. Like, that's what we're doing. Coming up, we hear from the filmmakers about their first projects. That's next, after this. Welcome back to the True False Podcast presented by KBIA. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. This episode, we're listening to a field session from last year's festival, in which filmmakers Kaligala and Ursula Leung sat down to talk about filmmaking and take questions from the audience, like this one. Hey guys, uh, my question is, what were the first projects that you did uh, early on in your career that eventually got you to the point where you were able to make your first features? I don't even know. I mean, I'm a career changer. I was a print journalist, and I the my this is my second feature and my first feature was my first. So I don't know if that would be the starting point or mm. not, but, mm -hmm. but it was the same kind of thing where you just pick up a camera and you start recording and then all of a sudden you have this momentum that doesn't stop. Um, mm -hmm. that film was called nine man. And, uh, did I do, but I mean, I guess maybe your question goes back to like, maybe it's something else that I did in my creative life that made me feel like I could tell stories. And, um, I think, I don't know. I've always been making things since I was young. Like mm. I made, mm -hmm. you know, helped, started making clothes, I started drawing, making origami, like all the things when I was younger. And then um, it all sort of evolved into a, a career as an adult, as like a storyteller, as a, as a journalist. And that, that, you know, being a journalist made me feel very comfortable about storytelling in general. I mean, I know like a beginning, middle and an end. And, um, and actually I think part of that process, that got me very comfortable with speaking to people. So I actually really love talking to strangers. That's what I mm. love about your work mm. is like you are unafraid to like walk up to strangers and not all filmmakers and all people are comfortable with that. But I'm the kind of person that like will talk to people on the yeah. subway and we'll talk to like random ass people. And, um, you know, I think you, you can sort of train yourself in that, you know, professionally I trained myself because I had to talk to people for stories, but um, I think, you know, that paired with like a personal interest in, in just like connecting with people is, did puts you me to, in a good place. Did you go place. to film school at all? Or no, I like self-taught. That's nice. Are you self-taught yeah, too? Yeah, yeah. But I learned from friends, like, you know, I had like, I live in New York, so like I had friends that were making films, everyone, half, half the people in New York went to NYU and they needed like somebody to take stills on their set and so I did stuff like that. Yeah, you just pick it up. Like, yep. I mean, now with, with the internet, I mean, 
you know, I remember uh, I had a book. It was like this thick, how to make films or something. Did you ever read it? Nah. No, I had I a lot of those books on my shelf too. Yeah, like <laughs> too much reading. Because there's no formula. Yeah. That's the thing. Like you know, like there's really, you know, if you have moving picture and sound, that's a film. I mean, depending on how you package it, how you organize it visually yeah. and, and sonically, it becomes a film. Actually, now I'm thinking about it. Like my dad always did a lot of like, he never was. He's not a filmmaker, but he recorded us a lot on Super 8 home and movies. home movies. Beautiful. And he also, I recently found as I was cleaning my mom's house up, like he was recording our dinner conversations on like cassette tape. <laughs> so there's like a tape. My brother is like 48 years old or something like that now, and there's a tape where he's like one years old talking <laughs> on a cassette tape. And one day I hope to do something with some of that stuff. Yeah. Like he was sort of amassing that history and had that. You know, I think I come from that kind of instinct. He's also you know, he's not at all, he's in the sciences, he's not at all, like, in this space, but was the kind of person that would tell story, you know, n needed to sort of perform stories in family functions and things like that. So I think the storytelling, like, history sort of surrounds us. And mm -hmm. No, that's, that's some tremendous insight back then, be recording on cassette tape, like, yeah. you know, family dinners, like, that's the stuff that I do. I yeah. walk around my house with, um, you know, my phone, my actual iPhone, just on the record, just recording stuff. Sometimes I'll be in a place, I'll, I'll just throw that on because, you know, there's always little snapshots and everything that, that you yeah. may be like, oh, wow, when this person said this, you can't recreate it. No. You know? There will, you know, a lot of people will watch these films here, True False, great audiences, but once you put the film out into the world, like, does it just disappear? And um, was it worth it? You know, I spent like right. four years making this film was, and there are a lot of things that I sacrificed and a lot of struggles that I went through making the film and, and the success of the film or the failure of the film, uh, weighs heavily on like your feeling of whether or not you, you know, did the right thing. Right. And if it was worth it and all yeah, of that. Yeah. And that's a lot of, that's, that's really hard emotionally, I think. I mean, that's when selfishness comes into play. You have to be a little selfish, not in the connotation of the word, but selfish in the sense that you made something that was that important to you that it was worth it because yeah. otherwise it was you know you could you could kind of feel like i wasted years or right. i wasted a lot of energy because think about making a film you get into arguments with people at times like what are those yeah. arguments worth like really you don't want to argue with people but sometimes if you're working with a crew you know what i'm saying um even me like w it comes down to permissions i always make sure that i get people's permission and I don't want to violate anybody because I'm working in the streets mm -hmm. and some of those people are in and out of jail. Like you don't want to start nothing and end up, you were trying to make art. Now you, now you got shot or something stupid. Like, so permission is a big thing. And then, um, sometimes people don't want to sign or they don't want to give a verbal or a video release and you got something really good and then you can't use it. So, you know, now I'm learning like about my process. I think every filmmaker has to figure out what their process is going to be and kind of like stay within that those parameters you know and it's good if you have people that are professionals around you like so when you go out how many people are around you it feels like you're I'm by alone. yourself no i'm pretty okay. much alone when i'm yeah. shooting but you know the people that are more i'm talking about are like producers that i could call and like right. oh i did this what do you think about this or music clearance i try not to use any music that is not like my own people's music that i could use you know um, on this film, uh, Fourth Disciple is a music producer from a rap group, Killer Army, which is a part of uh, Wu-Tang. They're like a branch of the Wu-Tang family, and he's their 
like their producer, and he scored the whole film. And I used some of his old music from the old like Killer Army uh, uh, albums. And I said to him, like, yo, how am I going to go? Do I need to clear this stuff? Or he was like, that's all mine. I already own that. So what ends up happening is he gets a bigger fee. You know, I could just pay him more of a fee. And, you know, that's that's type of relationship that I'm trying to, like, build those type of things. Because, you know, people t will take advantage of you in this world, in the industry, in the film industry, of course. And there's a lot of money floating around. Everybody thinks that everyone has money. And a lot of directors are just trying to just make art. You know what I'm saying? Right. How do you deal with that with your subjects? Because I think subjects a lot of times think that you're making money off of them. Well, I pay a lot of my subjects. Right. I know that's, not, that's unpopular to say. Like a lot of filmmakers, they don't want to say that they give their subjects anything because once they feel that way, it's no longer authentic to them. Mm -hmm. But when you're dealing with a lot of people that are living in poverty, living in the street life, I think it would be cruel not to bless them but the way you do it can't be like oh i'm gonna pay you this so that you tell me this i usually just say yo i'm gonna bless you with something after we we film and do an interview something light because i don't really have a lot of money and because i have a rapport in the same environment shooting over for seven years people kind of like are open to that you know well, it's very clear if when you watch your films, that's what you're doing, too. So the audience, it's, it's there's an honesty with the audience, which I think is... You can hear it too. in the movie. Yeah, you like, can hear oh, it. Yo, here's a couple dollars yep. or whatever. Like, I mean, sometimes people are living an alcoholic drug life, and they just want to buy a beer. Right. But if they're a grown adult, I'm not going to tell them, no, don't buy a beer. If they want to crack a cocaine or something, I'd be like, you know, you know, I could tell the type who do, who does that. But, you know, I have given money to people that are drug addicts before. You know what I'm saying? I have. So how is that for you? Well, I mean, it's difficult at times if <coughs> they're going to go and try to, like, further disintegrate themselves, right? But if they're just going to buy a bear like they usually do, I don't care. I mean, I got my own vices. Mm -hmm. But you don't want to um, influence people in a negative way either. So... You gotta straddle, straddle that. You know what I'm saying? I'm just very much still just not a doc, not a filmmaker, not an artist, just a regular human at the same time. Right. So you know, but you gotta be careful. You know what I'm saying? You gotta be careful. I, I do things in, in an environment where there's always people looking. The police are watching me. Mm -hmm. You know, police want to know how come I get along with the people that they kind of you know, feast on in a way. Do they really ask you that? What's well, your answer? Well, a couple of times they asked me what was good, like what's going on? How come you're able to gain access? They've asked me stuff like that. And I just, oh, those are my brothers. Those, those are my people's. Uh, I mean, I think it's part of what we talked about at the top, like the energy that you walk into a space with, like. It's I'm very important. Pretty sure that even if, even if they walk in with good intentions, the energy has to be, has to be felt in the right way when they walk up. Kaligala is the director of I Walk on Water, and Ursula Leung directed Down a Dark Stairwell, both of which showed at True False 2020. That's it for this week's episode of the True False Podcast. You can find more episodes on our website at kbia.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was recorded live during last year's fest, and it was produced and edited by Olivia Moses. Our music is by Tim Pilcher using sounds from the True False Film Fest. I'm Sebastian Martinez Valdivia. Thanks for listening.